This podcast is proudly supported in part by Different Drop, online wine retailers specialising in Australian wines of authenticity, provenance and innovation. If you go to the Different Drop website, what you're going to find is a whole range of different wines produced by generally small batch, um, artisan, uh, a lot of times sustainable winemakers around Australia that you're not really going to find in a lot of the big chain retail stores because they have been lovingly sourced uh, and researched by the guys uh, to actually introduce the audience to um, new wines, exciting wines, uh, dynamic wines made by some real up-and-coming winemakers around the country. Uh, you can It's really easy to find stuff, like if you want to find particular wines based on grape variety or region, um, wine style, it's really, really, really easy. Uh, and um, they proudly support the podcast by uh, setting up a little secret section for listeners of the podcast to actually find some special packs that you're not going to find in the rest of the website. So if you go to differentjob.com forward slash intrepid wino, you'll be uh, led to a special section. And then uh, if you put in the special code intrepid wino at purchase, then the guys at Different Drop are going to look after you a little bit more. But uh, the kind of wines you find on the website don't last for very long. So I do suggest going there and s- securing some wines made by uh, previous and future guests of this very podcast. So thanks guys for supporting the podcast. Uh, and thank you Different Drop for your support of these great Australian wines. On episode 63 of the Vincast, I chat with Jenny Port, one of the most respected wine communicators in Australia. In fact, the 2014 Wine Communicators of Australia Communicator of the Year, someone who's been writing for the age for almost 30 years and has a wealth of knowledge and experience about Australian wine. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Kersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Authentic Wine Chat. Uh, I've got a really, really exciting guest, someone I've wanted to have on for a long, long time. Uh, but um, before we get to that, um, if you haven't yet visited the Intrepid Wino channel on YouTube, uh, you probably have missed um, some little tasting videos I've been doing uh, under the name Let's Taste. But um, you might have also missed the first two uh, Let's Taste Live videos. Uh, I've come up with this really crazy concept to actually have a guest on um, and stream live stream via YouTube uh, a little tasting so people can actually uh, watch and ask questions and and make comments and even taste along with us. So um, if you missed it uh, this past Wednesday evening, uh, I had uh, the guys from Unico Zello, Brendan and Laura Carter, who were in Melbourne uh, for the past week, uh, and they showed me the uh, some of the new release white wines from uh, from their vintage 2015, which was really, really exciting. So um, if you want to get involved on a live stream, I've got one coming up this Monday on the 17th of August at 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Previous guest of the podcast, Gary Mills, uh, will be showing his uh, Jamsheed 2013 single vineyard wines to me. Um, so if you want, See if you can go and secure the wines. You can buy them at differentdrop.com forward slash intrepid wino if you want to. Um, open up the wines, uh, have some friends over if you want to, uh, and you can actually taste the wines with us and make your own comments, ask some questions. It's really, I don't know, it's a crazy idea. Um, I'm still trying it out. I'm still knocking out the kinks, but um, it's it's really fun to do, and uh, and I hope you guys will get involved. Now, for this episode, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Jenny Port is one of the most respected uh, wine writers, wine communicators in Australia, uh, and has been instrumental in uh, effecting a lot of change in the Australian wine industry. Uh, she's obviously a big, big advocate for uh, for more women involved in, in wine, uh, something that's a bit of a hot t- topic at the moment. Uh, and so she uh, shared her experiences, she shared her uh, philosophies a little bit, and uh, she also shared with me her love of the Western Bulldogs, which is a, a team very close to my heart. But um, I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, stay tuned for the uh, the wrap-up. Uh, I'll see you on the other side. 
Jenny, thank you so much for making some time to be on the Vincast and welcome. Thank you. Absolute pleasure to be here. And I usually start every episode asking my guest uh, if they remember what the first interaction was with wine that kind of made you sort of stand up or sit up and take notice and think, oh, this, is, this might be something I could do. I remember quite distinctly. It's why I'm in wine. <laughs> I was about nine years old. Really? And, oh, yeah. And um, my aunt uh, had an Irish Catholic background uh -huh. and um, she had no children. I used to stay with her at the odd weekend and um, she would buy the two of us a bottle of Barossa Pearl ah. and uh, we would share it, Okay. me at nine years old, sharing it. Um, on a Saturday night. I've only heard stories of Barossa Pearl, but it was a sort of a sweet, bubbly It was one. quite sweet. Yeah. Um, it, was, uh, it wasn't a Method Champenoise style, and it's still, they've just brought it back, which really? I think is fabulous. It's only been <laughs> around the last 12 to 18 months in the same original label that yeah. they had back then. What about Benin Moselle? Yeah, that's all right. Okay. <laughs> and that only recently well, was dropped. Uh, no, I think Brossapel was better than Porphyry. Okay. Yeah. Is it kind of like what Moscato is? I suppose. In a way? I suppose. I think so. Um, it was very fruity. So I suppose, sure. yeah, there's similarities there. Um, Brossapel was launched for the 1956 Olympics. Oh, so really? it is an Australian version mm. of um, a sparkling kind of sect, I suppose. Back yeah, okay. Then. Um, very fruity, and I love the taste. Mm -hmm. And um, lower alcohol, I think so. Yeah, Although these days, I think it's around nine to eleven. Yeah, okay. For a nine-year-old, um, I think it was part of the alcohol, but I love the grapiness. Sure, uh, I loved it, and that was it. Okay. And and at what point did you kind of like later on sort of think? Like wine could be a career path or something. Oh, like I never, I never thought of wine as a career path. Okay. Journalism is the career path that I always wanted, and that's the one that I pursue. So, how did you get into journalism? Were um, you interested in journalism? I always wanted to do it. So, after I finished um, uh, secondary school, college, as they call it these days, I went to RMIT to do the journalism course there. You're from Melbourne originally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, for the first year I didn't have a job and one of the half-year assignments was um, doing a, a big lengthy um, piece on um, Cyclone that had just gone through uh, Darwin, Cyclone, Cyclone Tracy. Tracy. Yeah, okay. And so I went down to see the Chief of Staff at the, at the um, Sun News Pictorial, mm -hmm. Peter Livingston, and he was just handing out press releases because all the kids were going in there and asking for information about what had happened during that time. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I don't want a press release, I want to talk to you. And so I sat there and I had a, a chat to him and I found out that on that day, which was, what, New Year's Day or no, Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, no, Christmas Day, wasn't it, that um, he had two reporters on. They were husband and wife. Mm -hmm. He sent the husband. And I said, why didn't you send the wife, Alison Brower? And he said, well, it was going to be a tough environment. <laughs> and I, I quizzed him on that, and I think he actually appreciated that. So through that interview, I got a job. Oh, wow. And so um, I was 10 years at the Sun News Pictorial, and I started the wine column there. Okay. Well. So what sort of um, journalism, what sort of reporting were you doing uh, to begin with? Just general. As a cadet, Just you do everything. Yeah. yeah, general. Um, you do courts. I did a couple of years, felt like, of courts. Um, you do captions. You do, you know, you go on around to see what it is that you might like to do. And then I ended up in the women's section, as it was back then. The women's section. So yeah. what, what, what content was um, being put into the, it the women's section? It was women's issues. <laughs> okay. Which is still very important. Sure. Um, but it, it was also food. So it wasn't like lifestyle sort of stuff necessarily? What you might call lifestyle. It did have knitting patterns. Okay. So, um, but it was definitely aimed at uh, female audience. Uh -huh. And uh, the lady before me who went to the age was Rita Ehrlich. And so I filled her shoes. She went to do the Age Good Food Guide. She's very sure. well known in the Epicure yeah, that history name there. Oh, yeah. Familiar, yeah. And um, she was writing a food. So I did food, but then I liked more the wine side. So I started the wine column. 
And they didn't want a wine column back then because they said Mr. and Mrs. Mooney Ponds, and I do quote them, <laughs> my editors at the time, yeah. said that uh, they weren't interested in wine. That okay. their, base, their, their readership was not that kind of They weren't interested or they didn't drink wine? Bit of both. Okay. Wine back then, and I'm talking about the 70s, sure. was, um, was still pretty new. Yeah. The Age Epicure section was, was doing well, but they were targeting at that stage, and probably still do to a degree, the top 10% of, of what we would regard as serious wine drinkers. Right. Um, and the Sun didn't want to compete there. But okay. I disagreed, so I started it. So um, as far as sort of food writing and stuff like that, did you, did you, talk, you did a little bit of that to begin Only with? Only a little. Yeah. Only very little. We, we I did women's of, issues. I did, you know, writing on Were you, um, were you into food much? Did you, did you dye yeah. much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you, were you, in, in your wine kind of was so much life. more interesting. Yeah, okay, so, so how did you kind of, um, you got into wine before, you know, to, to sort of start a wine column, you would have had, you know, some experience with it. What was your kind of, your experience with wine before you started it? Like, did you just sort of drinking do it socially? Drinking a lot. Just drinking a lot. What was, what was some of the kind of the favourite wines as a, a young adult? Oh, dear. Well, just starting out, Matus Rosé. Right. Had to be. Change, change the wine world. Uh, Wolf Blast Riesling. Yeah. Uh, which was the number one selling white wine in Australia for at least four or five years. Mm -hmm. um, Benin, all those names that now kind of appear well down in history and, and very few drinkers today are aware of. But when I was first starting wine, Riesling was huge. And so was Cabernet. Did they, did they, well, I know that when I started in, at Liquorland, my, my then boss, my manager, had been working in hospitality and retail for years. He still referred to it as Ryan Riesling. Yeah. And I never, I couldn't, I was like, what, what, well, that what, was the issue. what's Rhine and then what's Rhine Riesling? Is, it's a very long story, but the basic story is that the Australian wine industry allowed Riesling to be both a generic and a variety, or variety varietal. Yeah. So that if you put Riesling on your label, it could be Riesling, or it could be a blend of Riesling or, and something else, or it could be other grape varieties. Back then, if you were buying a wine cask that had Riesling on it, it would be um, Sultana. Yeah, or Muscat Gordo. Yeah, all those. Yeah. No Riesling in it <laughs> because it was a generic term. And the big companies back then wanted it as a generic term because they were selling a lot of cheap wine and cask wine under the Riesling name. And it sounded a bit more premium than putting Sultana on it. certainly did. <laughs> so then the people said, well, if I've got the real Riesling, I will call mine Rhine Riesling to kind right, of okay. differ. Sure. But the trouble is then people were also taking Rhine Riesling and abusing it. Yes. And then right towards the time when they actually divided it and got a bit of common sense into the whole debate, mm -hmm. you had, um, I remember Matt Annam was the first, said, well, I grow Riesling, I'm putting Riesling in my, on my bottle, on my label, and I don't care. People will understand, people who know will know that it's the Riesling grape that I am promoting in my wine. Right. It's not a generic. And that started the debate and eventually they woke up to themselves. So um, the term... And that was Riesling that, as a generic was dropped. And that was about that time that, you know, Australia started to get more success, both in Australia but also in the export, some of the export markets, particularly the UK, where they started to label the, the grape varieties. And, and well, it was you see, that. Yeah, and it couldn't be exported as Rhine Riesling. No. And that brought that Export whole. sparkling burgundy or... Yeah, champagne. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that was actually part of that whole impetus that um, changed the rules because the Europeans said you can't sell this wine with champagne on the label, you mm -hmm. can't sell it with Rhine on the label, you can't sell it as um, Chablis on the label, which is what they were all labelled back mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. And then the Australians had to sit down with the Europeans and come to an agreement because the Europeans were putting massive tariffs on our wines so that yeah. they wouldn't sell. Yeah. They were teaching them a lesson. Mm. And the lesson was learnt and they sat down and that was the um, Australia-EU trade agreement, which we are now um, looking at. That's what 
is is part of our whole labelling, mm. our whole uh, label integrity program is all part of of that original meeting. Is that when they established the sort of labelling laws as far as it has to be eighty five percent or? Have... No, 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 no. That wasn't part of it. Okay. That was the Australians gave up the use of the word champagne, Chablis, um, geographical terms. Yes. That were geographical places in Europe. Yeah. They gave those up. The Europeans were very grateful. They dropped their tariffs. They made it more accessible for Australian wines to have European market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Europeans turned around and said, well, you have protected our geographical boundaries. Mm -hmm. We want to protect yours so that in the future, you don't have what we had to suffer. You don't have a Barossa Shiraz coming from the Napa Valley. Mm. Um, and so Australians came back, and that was about 1984, and they spent 12 years working out all of their um, wine boundaries. The geographic indicators. Yeah. yeah and okay. that is a direct response from that Australia-EU trade agreement. Sure. And so the Label Integrity Program is added onto that as well. Right. So um, as far as wine communications back then, what did they kind of form? As far, were there many guides? Were there, there were some articles in places like Epicure? Were there wine periodicals or magazines? Oh, yeah, yeah. Perhaps not as many as today. Lynn Evans, of course, was in The Australian. Sure. Um, he was... Uh, one of the pioneers of in, in print. Um, Dan Murphy was the first age wine writer. <laughs> he wrote uh, a number of books, including a fascinating classification of Australian wines. Oh. So he early on thought there should be some form of classification. So classification in the sense of like this is a wine of quality, not yeah, necessarily a bit like a Langton. I give at this point. Okay, yeah. Think of a Langton's classification. Or the classification of, you know, Appalachians and Crews sort of thing. Less so. No, more I think more of a Langton's, more on reputation history, okay. tasting history. Yeah. Um, and that was always fascinating. Well, who else? Um, mm, there were a few. There were books. Uh, Journey, to, Journey to Victorian Wine. Um, yeah, there were a number of books around. Mm. And then James Halliday was still coming through, emerging at that time. I've got his early books. He did guides to Victoria, South Australia, New South Wales. Uh -huh. And he had a classification system too. It was AA or AB. One was, one was the quality and... There was there were there was two parts to his um, judging, yeah. Mm. So your decision to sort of you know force the issue, as it were, to get a you know some some space for wine uh, in, in the women's section. In the women's section. That's uh, why no one noticed. Uh, <laughs> the editor didn't care. He never read the women's section. Oh, there you go. Oh. What were what, what what were you hoping to sort of gain out of that? Was it just about sort of saying, hey, let's just talk about wine or education or interest? Was it or was it sort of just form part of the women's issues sort of thing? No, no. Although the first story I wrote was women in wine, oh. um, but no, I'm a journalist and my interest is always in what's news. And, a, and, and a telling story. story. Yeah, okay. Always. Do you remember what your first sort of piece was? Women and wine. Okay. Yeah. What, 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 as far as like women winemakers? Or... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, back then there weren't very many. I'm talking about, what, 79, 78, uh -huh. 79, uh -huh. 80. Um, Ursula Pridham was one I remember. There were a few around, but not very many. It was sure. still kind of interesting to, to and people didn't, didn't know, so I, I did a story on them. Um, were you mostly writing about Australian wine? Yeah, back then. Um, I do remember that uh, then as today that we had a lot of champagne producers coming through, especially yeah. around October, November. Mm. Um, so I was doing a lot on champagne. Um, but it was a bit like um, what we do today. Someone visits, you go out and meet them, have a chat to them, taste their wine. It was also the start of the Wine Press Club, 
Okay. That was starting around that time. I ended up on the committee and then I became president. And we were always getting fabulous speakers, always. Sure. So there was generally a really good story in there. Especially I remember one time we had Wolf Blass after he'd just sold um, his wine company to Muldara. And uh, that was a very kind of, I won't say volatile, but there was a lot of discussion mm. um, when he, he addressed us. Mm. Mm. Um, early on, did you kind of have to go and seek this story out or was I mean obviously now there's press releases that come out and you know like producers sort of talk I about will, doing I will, an I will always argue um, I don't rely on press releases no no but I mean, I mean I that's can't. good of course but I'm just, I'm just no one can rely on if, press releases if, if there were press releases relating to wine at that time or did you have to sort of seek the story out yourself completely yeah yeah. And they're the ones I like. I like stories that others don't get. Sure. I mean, the whole idea in journalism is to be first. Mm -hmm. There are no prizes for second. <laughs> um, to, to find something that you have that no one else has, I find um, great enjoyment in doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, you know, if it's news, that's fine, but you've got to get it first, mm -hmm. or hopefully. Um, Press releases, they're okay. They can give you information, and sometimes they will give you the germ of a story. But if you rely on press releases, you're not a journalist. Mm. I'm sorry. <laughs> of course. Um, what were some of the early experiences as far as going and visiting wine producers and vineyards? Well, that was the best fun. Still is. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I used to take all my holidays, still do, to a large degree in, in uh, wine regions. Yeah. So, you know, go up to the Rutherglen. I, I went to the Brossa Valley before I went anywhere else. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Brossa before I even went up to Rutherglen and then um, Trying to, to find Central where Brossa Pearl was coming from? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I just, I gotta say at that time, I really liked the Riesling from Brossa, still do. Mm -hmm. And Sem, and um, some of the early Grenache coming through, I really enjoyed. No, I was just, when you're that young and you know, keen, you're just a sponge. You just sure, want to sure. try everything. Yeah. And, hope, and I love the fortifieds and I, from the Brosser. And, oh, uh, it's, one, of the it's, best, one of the best visits of my entire life was going to Sepulchfield and, and sort know, of seeing that room with all that uh, para. Absolutely oh. magic. And to see fortifieds go into um, a bit of a, a spiral, downward spiral, is um, it's it's very sad mm -hmm. because it, it's forced a lot of producers to move out of fortified since they can't sell them. It's forced a lot of winemakers to not even think about becoming um, or have any interest in fortified winemaking. Mm. I believe that that has then led to um, education colleges no longer offering it as a mainstream subject for winemakers. So it has these, these terrible effects that, um, that just roll on from the fact that we're not drinking as much or even thinking about it as much. But, but again, I was there on that cusp where I used to drink a lot of Fortifarts. Mm -hmm. All of my friends did. Mm. And the thing that killed a flap was 0.05. Yeah. I it was like... the last thing you had at dinner, yeah. whether it was in a restaurant or in a, you know, at a home, and then you'd get in your car and you'd drive. And then after 0.05, it was the first thing you cut off. And I'm not saying that, it, that I don't like 0.05. It was a fabulous um, introduction that had taught us more about the consumption of alcohol and mm. what we do when we get behind a wheel. No problem with that, but it did. It was the single biggest killer of the fortified wine market. Hopefully people are drinking less but drinking better. I hope so. Um, so at what point did you sort of move on from, from the sun? Was it before or after it kind of merged with the Herald? Just before. Okay. So um, I had my first child and I left the sun and about two years later it merged with, the, um, well, under Murdoch, they merged the, the sun and the Herald together. Mine mm -hmm. was the morning paper, merged it with the afternoon paper, but I went straight to the age. Okay. Epicure. And you've sort of been there ever since. Mm -hmm. How bad? It's a few years now? We're, 29. We're... <gasps> wow. Yeah. Far out. Mm. Um, were you, did you start in Epicure? Or there, yep. there were some other 
at the time, were there other spots for, for wine? Nope. No, that was it. That was it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think who was there. I don't think Mark Shield had come on yet. He came a little bit later. Sarah Goff mm-hmm. um, was, was there was there before me, I think, or well, there with me for a while, and then she left to go to Brown Brothers as their PR. Um, like, oh, um, E. Mackay, he was mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. He was the wine writer. Okay. But The Age, um, until recently, has always um, employed at least three wine, wine writers, sometimes four. Mm. And I always found that um, absolutely amazing. I don't know of any other metropolitan newspaper in the world that has employed four wine writers at one time. That's pretty amazing. Mm. And was there, at that time, uh, there was weekly sort of wine reviews and stuff like that? Yeah, it was, it was um, a broadsheet back then. Okay. So we had a lot of space mm. and we ran really good stories, mm-hmm. um, quite long involved stories and some of them were tasting notes but tasting notes weren't really big back then i've got to say not like they are now Mm. um it was it was telling people more about um in in the form of a long read i suppose Mm. what we now might consider a long read tell me um what were some of the 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 articles that you really remember being really super proud of and and you know some of the stories that you shared with an audience um, well, we did a lot on liquor licensing back then. Okay. Um, it was it was just coming up to the time when the state government was looking at an overhaul of liquor licensing um, reforms, or the, the the bills at that time. And I think because of not just the stories I wrote, but the stories that the Age did pursue, um, that it it did help them um, to employ John Newenhausen to do his Newenhausen report. Mm-hmm. And that report, the findings of it, were largely taken up in the uh, liquor licence uh, bill, the, the reforms that came through in, what would it be, early 90s, I suppose. Um, so I was really proud of that. Mm-hmm. But I can't um, say that I alone was Completely responsible for that. <laughs> but I, I, it was good to, I mean, that's part of journalism too, to actually do something to change society for the better. Sure. And I think it did. Um, up until then, you uh, you had a lot of BYOs. That licence um, was quite restrictive. It mm. was very hard to get wine li- um, to uh, restaurant bar licences because of the power of the hotel groups, Australian sure. Hotel sure. Association. They were very powerful. Um, I, still, I, I still couldn't quite work out why, like a selling point was, we are licences, like, is that a wait? What is that a good thing? I don't, I don't get it. But it wasn't until much later that I understood. Oh, that's what it means, and that's why it's kind of important. And just the flexibility—you could not have a glass of wine by itself. It had to be by a meal with a meal. Mm. And um, that was a breakthrough for me, I think, and the breakthrough for um, Victoria in in Australia because we were among the first the ACT was the first but we were um, around the second to have this thorough reform of um, liquor licensing so that you could sit outside have a glass of wine with no food Mm. and act like a responsible adult and and enjoy what John Neuenhausen always said was this more Mediterranean lifestyle of course and he foresaw the closing of those beer barns and the, the creation which we have now of smaller wine bars, um, suburban wine bars. So you didn't get in your car and drive to a, a beer barn 20 miles away and, and drink a skinful and then drive home. Mm. His idea was, and he got it from looking just what you did in Italy, was walking to your local wine bar, having a glass or two, mm. having some food, walking back home. Mm. And it was, it was part of the food and the wine and a more community proper um, appreciation and education of alcohol. And a culture around it. Yeah. Now it's time for just a quick mid-episode break to mention another supporter of this podcast. Guys, have you ever gone shopping for glassware and thought that there were too many different shapes, one for every conceivable style and variety you can imagine, and thought, couldn't it be a bit easier than this? Well, the guys at Plum Glassware thought exactly the same thing, and they did a lot of research to determine that, realistically, you only need a couple of shapes, and that's going to cover all your needs. And, you know, for white wine, you need two shapes. Red wine, you need two shapes. 
shapes, basically one for aromatic and one for complex wines, and then a flute. So you can cover everything you might need with just five glasses. If you go to plum.com, you're going to find a lot of information, a story about plum. Uh, you'll find information about the, the crystal itself. Uh, and you'll also be able to subscribe to um, their, their kind of mailing list and get an introductory offer. You'll get $120 worth of glassware for $35 plus a $35 voucher off your next purchase over $60. Uh, and if you do go there, please let them know that you were sent there by the Intrepid Wino. Uh, and um, thank you guys for your support of this podcast. So where did the kind of the the, the tasting note and, and the, the scoring or, you know, a rating of a wine sort of come on board, do you think? Oh, I know when it came on board. It was after Robert Parker. Right, okay. Um, so so was it? did Robert Parker have sort of resonance here in Australia? Oh, yes. Or, okay, wow. Oh, yes. In the um, Barossa Valley in particular. Sure. And so what we had for a while there was uh, he would come over. It did not that he came over that often, but he would come over. Or wines, he had a distributor in the US who would have the wines and then send it to him. Mm. And he would review them and there were... Um, a number of wines that, that got high scores. Mm. And so the producers here use that as leverage to uh, get into wine lists and wine shelves. And that had this roll-on effect that it was around that same time too where Australia realised that it was part of a global world, mm -hmm. I suppose, that we were no longer that isolated, mm -hmm. that we had wine companies coming here from overseas and gobbling other wine companies up. Um, we, people were in the US, in Europe, were talking about Australian wines. They were coming here and we were going there. It just became a much smaller wine world. And part of that was um, Robert Parker making it smaller from that point of view. It, it was a bit slow here to resonate, but because it resonated in America particularly, I remember I did one story where there were a few um, sommeliers who were taking their allocation of some particular winemakers from the um, Barossa and selling it into the US market to... Um, Local sommeliers selling yeah. it? Oh, my God. Yeah, and... Um, some of the producers didn't like that, so they yes, it was. So they alerted me, and I wrote a story about it. And I think it kind of stopped rather suddenly. But the U.S. market wanted all these wines, and suddenly we were on allocation here, and we're going, well, "What is all this about?" And so the whole Robert Parker phenomenon arrived, mm. and that's when Australian wine writers said, "Well, do we get on this bus or don't we?" And a number held out. But the first, one of the first to go was James, because mm -hmm. he has a he he realised there was a global market for for his um, scores, his you know his his books on Australian wine. So James Halliday was among the first. So he was thinking not necessarily exclusively for an Australian audience. It was a more a global audience who craved, you know, a Australian taste note and a rating. Yeah. Okay. It was a, it was a way to kind of compete with Robert Parker, if you like, sure. because he had hit all of his notes on Australian wine far more comprehensive than of Parker course. could ever do, and and so what he had to do though was, and what all wine writers who have a hundred point system have used, and no one points it out, is that Halliday adapted his a little bit differently mm -hmm. to Parker's system. And it's generally around the 94, 90, 95, 96 mark where they changed their, their scores. So he had his own James Halliday 100-point system. Okay. And then the next was Jeremy, um, Jeremy Oliver. Oliver. Yeah. And he went into quite an involved process. You should talk to him about it sometime, mm. about how he came to the 100-point system. He tried a mathematical um, way of looking at the 20-point system, which we were all using, in, especially in show judging, sure. converting that 20-point into a 100-point. And so his, again, is a very different individual 100-point system to mm -hmm. James. Mm -hmm. And then slowly other wine writers got on board too. So were, were they in, in guides or was this in, in sort of articles and stuff like that? James did it in his books. 
and Jeremy did it in his books. Right. And then around that time, of course, we have the start of blogs. Okay. So you've got to see it in a, in a kind of um, historical sense. Sure. That one almost begets the other, that around that time everyone's talking about scores and, of course, Parker had moved from uh, The Wine Advocate in a uh, newspaper magazine format into online and then everyone else was going online. So all of your tasting notes online, you could then just put a score in. Mm. Um, and then in, in books. And then it just went from that into magazines and slowly into papers. Mm. I think newspapers were the late or the last to really get on board. But this is my point, which gets me quite... I'm frustrated, and as a consumer, I can't imagine how people can understand it. Everyone thinks there's only one hundred point system, sure, and each one is different. And unless they put a guide to how they approach what is outstanding, what is great, what is good, you know, that kind of thing, and even those terms can change. Um, you don't know. Mm -hmm. Everyone goes, well, it's got to be ninety and above, but even within ninety to one hundred, there's still a lot of difference. Mm, mm. Um, have compare a number of hundred point systems and just see the difference. That would be interesting to, to yeah. write a piece on that. Um, now you mentioned show judging. Did you get the opportunity to do much show judging? I do a little. Right. Um, I'm a non technical wine judge. I'm not trained as a winemaker. So for years, I was an associate. Mm -hmm. The winemakers were um, the judges, and I was an associate. And then. Around that time, there was an overhaul of the wine show system too, where they said, well, we need people who represent consumers, that winemakers are all very well, that they've got technical knowledge. But we would like people to balance the, the, the judging panels and have um, those that are sommeliers, uh, wine writers, those who don't have, um, in many cases, wine training, but are dealing with wine every day mm -hmm. and can give a consumer viewpoint. And so, yeah, I, I graduated to judge status. Mm. Did you find that interesting as far as how the one media, one judge and that kind of thing was starting to think more about the consumer rather than... Because I think that I, I did actually an episode quite some time ago talking about wine shows and how the idea was to improve quality, you know, as far as establishing what uh, breed, I guess, is or what, what quality is for for variety and, and region that kind of thing, um, it, it, do you do you think it's interesting that that is thinking more? Okay, now it's about consumer and it's about you know educating them about what is quality and what is provenance and what is quality of this sort of variety. I think wine shows have changed in a number of ways, and one of them is that yes. Instead of improving the breed, which is what it was always about originally, and that mm -hmm. that was getting winemakers in at the exhibitor tasting, and and having a chat to them about why their wine was faulty or why it got 14 points or why it got 18 points, and then it slowly evolved into well, you know, let's talk about the consumer, and that's where I came in because I only write for consumers, and I, I am a consumer myself. Of course. And then I could see that that um, they then brought in consumers. And even now, we're talking about, um, just lately, not even having those big fancy wine show dinners, mm -hmm. you know, and everyone clapping each other on the back, mm. that to open up in, in a more practical way to consumers. Mm. And that's where this second thing has come in, which can be a good thing or not. And that is where wine shows are now selling their wine, mm. the wines that do well. Mm. I'm not sure about that myself. I think that is outside their um, boundaries for me. I don't want them selling wines, promoting the wines that, that do, do well. Do you, so you mean like the wine show as a brand? Put, yeah. Right. They, there are a number of wine shows. They will tie in with a retailer, and, at, and those wines that do well at the end will then be part of a dozen um, or a you know um, the, the the gold medal white wine dozen or I don't know how they actually promote wow. it. Wow, to be honest, I'm sort of so you know out of the loop as far as wine shows. I didn't even know that kind of thing was going on. Yeah, that's interesting. And then you have uh, sponsors. Dan Murphy's does come to mind, 
and they, they will sponsor a number of wine shows and then part of their deal is that um, the, the wines do well in that wine show will then be bought mm. by Dan Murphy's uh, to promote in, in a similar vein. Mm. And you have had some winemakers say, well, I've done well in X wine show, but to tell you the truth, I don't necessarily want to go through Dan Murphy's. Sure. I have my own avenues for, for sales. Sure. It, it's, it's muddying the waters from my point of view. I can understand they're saying, well, this is that next leap from wine shows, that it's not about winemakers and it's not about the industry, it's, it's about, about consumer. consumers. Yeah. And I would argue that there are synergies involved with that, but then you have to think that, come on, there's some, there must be some conflict of interest at some point. I just don't, well, I don't even know about conflict of interest. I just don't feel right being involved in something that then becomes a commercial money-making exercise. Sure. I don't know. I sure. just, I like things straight and <laughs> simple and transparent. Sure. Um, how did you find um, sort of the advent of, of uh, more online space and social media? You know, I, of course, you're someone that I, I, I follow and, and regularly I enjoy your, your tweeting, for example, um, particularly as we're both Western Bulldogs supporters. Yeah, and it's always Bulldogs. Good, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you, have you found that has changed communication as far as I oh, love it. Love it. Um, for a while there, we had these wine writers who thought um, that, that they were gods. <laughs> and Robert Parker was part of that phenomenon, I think. Sure. And that's where scores got so out of control, where, where you'd give a wine 98, not that I ever gave scores, and I don't do scores, but, you know, you'd give a wine 98, and then you would sit back and just, you know, wait for the ka-chings as, you know, that cons the, the, the maker of that wine sold out, and you could feel rather pleased with yourself, for, you know, that you'd done that, and all mm. that kind of stupid nonsense. Um, I don't like that. And I don't like people feeling that they have um, a monopoly on information. Mm. And I think that was the great thing about the explosion of social media mm. and blogs. Um, I do like that. I do like that whole diversification. My only issue is, again, it's that, that whole question of transparency. And I work under a number of code, codes of ethics and I have concerns that a number of bloggers don't. Mm. It's a bit of a wild west to a degree. I think, I'm sure it all gets sorted out. I think that it, it, in Australia, in my opinion, um, wine blogging is still not a big thing, not like food blogging, for example. Um, and I think there's still not as much scrutiny on that sort of thing. It's 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 there it, it could be more, but I don't know. Do, what tell me, tell me what you think? Do you think wine blogging? Do you, are people, as far as the consumers, as far as you know, is there a readership getting behind wine blogging as opposed to sort of just wine social media? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, all we've got to do is look at the wine idealist. I think he's doing fabulous stuff. Um, there well, are there former, are former guests of the podcast. Oh, well, um, <laughs> there are some that do it so well. Sure. And then there are others, and I, I don't want that whole medium to be um, counterproductive. Sure. I would like for um, I suppose, as I said, maybe it all gets sorted out. That that the, the poor performers, those that are taking money um, to to write up reviews. Um, that aren't necessarily letting people know that they're being paid, um, that they will, they will be found out, mm. and they possibly will. And maybe I, I am just exaggerating my concerns about it, but that, that would be my main concern. It is concern. concern, of course. You know, if, you, if you're not work, if you're not employed by a, a media organisation where you're expected to follow a code of ethics, a code of conduct, um, you know, the, the potential for that to be taken advantage of, of course, is, is, is pretty significant. Um, well, I think in food blogging, I don't know whether you'll ever get to this in wine, but, but you certainly have appearance fees. Yeah. A number of the, the top 
bloggers are being offered money to appear at, at functions and, and to kind of... That, to me, is not very transparent. That, that to me, to, is To me, um, that, that's sort of going into that whole the MasterChef phenomenon as well. It's, 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 it's an interesting, but I think that's probably another topic. Yeah. <laughs> as far as um, other writing or comms, um, apart from your work with Epicure, do you, are you doing much writing elsewhere? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, James Halliday's... Wine Companion magazine, okay, which is doing some nice stuff. Mm. They're, they're, you know, with magazines you have to have a certain little market niche that you're looking at, and I think they do this well. Yeah, I've always written for Wine State many, many years. Um, Peter. yeah, Gourmet Traveller wine, mm -hmm. love Gourmet Traveller, um, Wine Selector, um, what else? Oh, I write for Il Tridente, which is a Maserati magazine. Okay. That's nice. I do like Maseratis. So do I. <laughs> and um, Meiniger uh, Wine Business International, which is based in Germany, they do fascinating stuff. It's more business orientated. And are they kind of giving you stuff, or are you pitching I pitch. stuff to them? Yeah. So how how does that work? Do you you've got a, a range of different stories? You you know you're working on, you have worked on. Well, and like you've got to know what your what your market is, what your magazine is, sure. and so. Hopefully, um, I don't get that many pictures knocked down, knocked back. Um, <laughs> I, would, should, I should hope not at this point. <laughs> well, yeah, you should know what you're doing by now, you sure. think. Um, not all of them are, um, but, yeah, it's – people go, oh, where are your ideas from? I, often people have no understanding. They, they, they go, you know, oh, you've got to think of these story ideas all the time. There are stories everywhere. Mm. You meet people, you talk to people, you taste things. I'm out there meeting and talking and tasting all the time. Stories drop onto my lap if I can pick them up and, and make them interesting, um, readable, entertaining, informative. Mm. And if I could get you to look into your sort of wine com crystal ball, what do you think is going to be something everyone's going to be talking about in five years' time? Gee, I'd love to think it was Marsan. It has been waning so, so very long. Well, it's quite interesting that um, probably the best-known wine podcast, I have to admit, um, uh, I'll drink to that with Levy Dalton, he just interviewed the uh, wine, winery, uh, wait, Tobilk. Winery of the winery Year. Winery of the Year in, in the Wine Companion. Yep. Um, and he was really talking up Marsan. <gasps> What is wrong with people out there? Why can't they see? That's good enough for, for the Queen. Yeah, look, <laughs> I've been going to Tobilk and I'm, you know, I don't hold back on it. Tobilk is, is one of my favourites. I mm -hmm. shouldn't have favourites, but I've been going there for over 30 years. And over 30 years I've been buying Marsan. Mm -hmm. And I just don't understand why people don't get it. It's it's beautiful and fresh, young, mm. and then it ages so gracefully. It's mm. like Riesling or Hunter Semillon. Yeah. Well, the 1927 vines was made in that style, and sure. it's released with six years or so age. Sure. And it is made in that deliberately different style. And interestingly, it will only get released if it gets a trophy, and it always gets trophies. <laughs> And I have judged it where it has got But um, it's just such a damn good wine. Yeah. And he age, they age it themselves and they release it too. How many producers do that, especially with a white wine? If anyone thinks of Masan, particularly, you know, from Tabilk as daggy, you need to get over it because it is such an undervalued wine. It is a dead set bargain. You can see it through, you know, the whole prism of age. That's what I love. It get it when it's just released. Mm. You get that lovely honeysuckle jasmine char character coming up, and then you just watch that toast develop, and that honey come in, and then you know it can be so glorious. Well, I'll tell you what. I think I might have to do a little. Um, I've started doing some little YouTube tastings. I might have to do one on some young and some old. To Bill, I might uh, see if I can secure some bottles. But 
Thank you very much, Jenny. I really appreciate you um, being you. And, and sharing some of your experience and your your wisdom. Um, what uh, what what are the ways apart from the uh, the publications you mentioned that people can uh, can follow you? What what are your tell us your social media handles? <laughs> I only have Twitter. Okay. I don't have Facebook. No. Um, no. Um, I have, I'm on Facebook to follow others. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lurker. And I don't have a blog, and I'm I'm really quite um, terrible. Although I will put in a in a plug for my dear friend Jane Faulkner, who is launching her blog after about three years. Oh my it is this year, cross fingers, and why <laughs> matters, and that will be fabulous. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can I compete with something like that? She has been working on it so long; it's going to be fabulous. But um, no, I just I'm on Twitter. I can get her on to talk about that. Oh. But um, but you are at Jenny Port yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. And if you're a Bulldog supporter, I insist you follow her. Yeah. And thank you guys for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Guestbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And you can follow me on social media on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, you'll find my Facebook page where I share lots of stuff. And if you go to the YouTube channel Intrepid Wino, one word, you'll be able to find lots of different videos that I'm posting all the time, including some of the Let's Taste videos that I've mentioned. Uh, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, it's the best way to be able to download the episode as soon as it becomes live. Uh, go to iTunes or Stitcher or Player FM or even the Podcaster app on your phone and press that subscribe button. And if you do that, please do leave a rating and review because I love to hear from people and I would really appreciate you spreading the word about the Vincast. Uh, of course, if you go to www.intrepidwino.com, you'll find all that information as well as every episode of the podcast, lots of different writings, all the videos, really, you know, lots of different ways you can get in contact with me because I would love to hear from you. Uh, I'm really excited for the next episode and make sure you stay tuned for the Gary Mills Jam Sheet live stream tasting on Monday the 17th at 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Thanks very much. Thank you to Jenny for joining me on this episode. I will see you next time. Bye.